Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guests are Lynn Mento, who is the CEO of Conservation Nation, and Dr. Mark Valituto, who is a scientist and a conservationist at Echo Health Alliance. And they both are working on a project called One Health, which is set to prevent the next global pandemic. The whole message of this podcast really is about saving wildlife that will then save human lives and the intersection of conservation and how it works with our human health. So I'm thrilled to have these amazing humans on the show. Welcome, Lynn and Mark. Lynn and Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Mark, you have the best name ever. I'm just going to say it because I like saying it. It is Dr. Mark Valituto. Did I get that right? Yeah. Perfect. And on reading all about you, I actually think you're a better place to be in a James Bond movie because I (laughs) totally think in my mind, you're on this island, probably snowing with your scientist glasses on and your white coat and you're preventing the next global pandemic. So... (laughs) I just wanted to let you know that that's in my head, but to take a more serious note, because we're talking about a very serious subject here. We're talking about preventing the next global pandemic, which has touched the entire world of human beings in some way, shape or form. We've obviously had deaths. People have lost family members. I actually don't think I know anybody who hasn't had the coronavirus. And so your work combined is both fascinating and also extremely needed. Now, I'm going to start with you, Lynn. Lynn Mento, my friend and colleague, very excited to be working with you uh, through the Body Agency Collective, focused on this project called One Health. So before we jump into that, I have to say I love your work at Conservation Nation You have this incredible career of working as the first female leader at the National Zoo. So kudos all around there. But what I also know, and I think you told me the story at some point, is that you are also very inspired to not just do conservation work, but also to empower young people through STEM and education to really teach them about the planet. And and that was inspired by your mother. Is that right? Yeah, that is true. Yes. Yeah. And your mother was a an immigrant of a very poor Italian family that came to the States and is now a success story. And now look at you, by the way, <laughs> at the forefront of conservation. So I'd like to start by really understanding how does conservation intersect with human health? Mm-hmm. So it falls under this umbrella of one health, as you talked about through the Body Agency Collective. And One Health is the universal study that people, wildlife, and the environment are deeply interconnected mm-hmm. in ways that require us to break barriers around silo thinking and think systemically and holistically about solutions and perspectives and the work that needs to go into this. And the piece that we're going to be focused on today around within the One Health study is the work around preventing pandemics. And three out of four of the new and emerging infectious 
diseases that causes pandemics arise from wildlife, from Mm -hmm. animals. Mm -hmm. And so it's critical that we focus on this particular intersection of these zoonotic diseases and how we can identify and stop, prevent the next pandemic by studying and protecting these animals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is our fault that this is happening because we are encroaching into their space. Right, right. So am I to understand that the animal who is responsible for the onset of these pandemics, or at least the coronavirus, is the bat? So the bat is the most likely hypothesis for the COVID-19 virus, but pandemics can arise from bats, rats, mosquitoes, mammals, and it happens when we humans are encroaching into their space. So we are coming in by clearing land, placing cattle on their ground, by hunting them for bush meat, um, mm-hmm. illegal poaching. And then these products are coming into the the hunters are intersecting with them. And then they're coming into these. You may have heard of these wet markets in China, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where uh, which are sort of a vector for uh, future pandemics. And the, the wildlife is coming in and it, the folks who are working around that wildlife are being infected. And then within 24 hours it can start spreading globally. Okay, so just so I understand how this is transferred into humans. So at some point, some bats were taken to the wet market in China. Is that right? And then the farmers and the market workers and the community there in that wet market in China, how did it transfer from the bat into the human? Was it through a mosquito bite? Was it through eating them? Like, how does that happen? Yeah, that's a great question, Kate. I really appreciate you, you know, digging into these details, actually. Like Lynn said, this has actually been the work that I've been doing over the last five or six years now. And it's specifically to look for where exactly these viruses of pandemic potential could come from. What are the points that people are going to be exposed to them? And so your theory, your question about whether or not it came from a bat that then got to a market and then exposed itself to people is the theory that we're going with, largely because in those markets, those wet markets, you have a variety of animals that are not supposed to be there all mashed together. And so you have things like bamboo rats, pangolins, fish, various other species that naturally don't interact with each other. And all of them are immunosuppressed. They're stressed. And so that helps them able to capture as well as transmit diseases. So theoretically, what we think is that a bat that naturally carries a lot of these viruses was indeed brought to a market, but then interacted with other species that are able to contract that virus because they are also stressed. In that body of that new animal, that new host, the virus has the ability to mutate, change its configuration, which then makes it more likely to be infectable into a human. And thereafter, you have a pandemic. Wow. Okay. Just out of curiosity, I know you work in South Asia and China. Sounds absolutely fascinating what you are doing. So thank you for telling us about it. So we can imagine it in our heads, right? So I think pandemics, there's still such a great mystery around them. And lots of different people and countries are blamed Right. And so it's good to have, you know, scientists really explain this to us so we really understand the facts. And I I get back to your good work, Lynn, that you're also doing with with young adults so that we Mm -hmm. sort of can change the face of this pandemic and, and also 
with this work around One Health, start to, you know, learn more and, and protect these animals and therefore, you know, prevent the next pandemic. So just just a quick response, Mark, to what you just said. What are rats doing being caged up in wet markets in China? Do people eat them? Yeah. So a lot of these communities, the rats are just part of their natural diet, something that may have been developed over thousands of years that they've learned that this is a good source of nutrition. But also there are other areas where these markets exist that are impoverished communities that actually don't have access to various animal species like farmed animals and whatnot. And so you have both traditional, cultural, as well as necessity for nutrition, why these rats would be present in these areas. Yeah. And I'm sure they're full of protein, right? Like any other animal. Exactly. So can a human being then who's eaten an infected bat or rat, is that how they are contracting the coronavirus? Potentially. So that's one yeah. way that it can be contracted in. Because right. normally you would hope that a lot of these animals are going to be cooked and so they wouldn't actually be infectious, oh. but it can okay. still be a source. But there's yeah. other ways that these viruses or other diseases get into our body. One is through aerosolization. Like if you're in a wet market and there's just these germs that are just floating in the air, especially if mm. an animal is breathing, sneezing, yeah. coughing, but also... Mm -hmm. When there's butchering going on, you're chopping up a meat organ and then the splashes get into the air. On top of that, you have open wounds, things being touching your skin and then touching your eyes thereafter. Any one of these are roots that can um, mm. cause an infection to mm -hmm. get into a body. So if we're crawling around caves and there's a whole lot of bats, we potentially just through the air can contract the coronavirus. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Now, one thing that I just learned from you, Mark, is the pangolin is the most trafficked animal in the world. Well, first of all, wow. I mean, <laughs> who knew? I think most people don't even know what a pangolin is. Can you first explain what a pangolin is and why they're being trafficked yeah. so, so horrifically? So just a clarification, they're the most trafficked mammal in the world. A mammal. Okay. Yeah. And so these are species that are native to both Africa and Asia. There's eight species altogether. And they are also part of a very long time of tradition within Chinese culture that encourages people to eat the meat because of reasons that there's, there's medicinal value. Also consuming their scales for different sources of medicine, and then bones of the pangolin. And it's also a um, societal example of, of like, you know, your self-worth or celebrations when you might eat a penguin because they are quite expensive. Mm. Lynn told me that you were on Sesame Street. And <laughs> I find this fantastic because we've, we've actually used Sesame Street over and over again to reach kids with various messages. And, you know, it's had a fantastic impact on social mobilization and behavior change of, of young children and teaching them. So I understand that Big Bird lost his nest, and that was <laughs> why you were on Sesame Street. What What are some of the ways that Lynn and, and Mark were teaching kids now about our future planet? We are doing it at Conservation Nation through the Conservation Nation Academy, where we're helping middle schoolers from traditionally underserved communities see themselves as rightful wildlife champions, mm -hmm. that they have every right to be in nature. We will be giving them an equitable leg up, helping them understand nature, their role, how to become a wildlife champion, 
and hopefully supporting them all the way up through a STEM academic and career path into conservation. And that's where our part is really about just opening eyes, lighting a spark, Mm -hmm. helping Mm -hmm. them see. And we've had these incredible moments where the girls, little girls have gone out and, you know, they've seen birds with binoculars for the first time. Or just this week, Kate, we had our fellow, Taylor Bland, who's this incredible African-American woman out at the Yellowstone Wolf Project, who's our first Conservation Nation fellow. And she came in for a week to spend with us at the schools. And you should have seen these girls at the schools when Taylor comes in and she's got her braids and she's showing what she's doing and she's talking about the wolves and the work out there. And they're just all leaning in. The hands are raised. One girl, I got teary-eyed. One girl Mm -hmm. said, I want to do what you do. She was a little sixth grader. And those are the moments, right? Mm -hmm. These sparks, these moments, that's how it begins for all of us. Yep. You know, before you comment, Mark, as Lynn knows, I have an 11-year-old daughter. And um, I shared with Lynn that from her graduation at elementary school, every kid was asked to make a comment on how they want to change the world. And literally... Every single kid in some form talked about the planet, Mm -hmm. talked about animals and kindness. So either you're doing a really, really good job because it wasn't like that in my day. You know, we weren't even aware of what's going on with animals and, and, and our planet. We weren't even aware. And now, of course... It is very much in the news. And, you know, my daughter comes home just the other day. I, I shared with Lynn, she made a poster, Save the Oysters. I didn't know I didn't know that oysters needed saving, but there you go. Apparently they do. <laughs> I'm not eating them anymore. No, no, I was going to say. <laughs> She's like, mm, yes, I had a lovely plate of oysters the other day. I'm like, you're part of the problem. <laughs> but yes, it's great that we have awareness in our schools and, and that mm-hmm. schools are even teaching this as part of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. My daughter also came home with the story of the whale that was washed up full of metal and rubbish and plastic and Mm. I mean just heart-wrenching and of course died because of it and I would also add that I went on a an arctic journey a couple of years ago leaving from Norway into the Antarctic and we were on the border of the Ukraine right in the middle of nowhere on an ice island like literally we all we saw was very skinny polar bears and then as I am looking out into the ocean I see a plastic bottle float ashore onto the ice island now that has gone really far right because we were in the middle of nowhere so we obviously have a very bad situation on our hands mark anything more to add on stem and how how we're teaching kids these days about the issues and 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 why are we teaching them by the way like what do you predict is going to happen from this good work Yeah, Kate, I love this question, largely because for myself, I went into this career because I loved animals. But as I progressed through it over the last 15, 16 years since graduating, I have transformed my priorities and my love to the benefit, the impact that we have on people, specifically the work that we're doing in the field, understanding that our job is not necessarily to vilify the activities, the cultures, the traditions that are happening out there that might predispose people to contracting these diseases. Our work is specifically to work with them, to encourage them to continue on their traditions, but find better ways. So one of the great things out of the several products that we've been working on is a book that was created by my colleagues called Living Safely with Bats. And this is to show the people that are 
working with bats in these communities, working with farms where they're exposed to these animals, and who also might be eating these animals because of their culture and livelihood. We show them the reason why bats exist, why they are important for us, why we can't just go out there and kill the bats, but what are the ways that we can protect ourselves from the bats and how can and should we interact with these species? Mm. Not only that, it doesn't stop just there at the community level, but we're also trying to empower the students in the universities, the schools, all of them to instill a sense of ownership for the work that's being done in their communities, in their countries, so that way they can grow up and become One Health professionals, yeah. partake in whatever manner they want to, whether it's scientist level, public health, education, community work, all of these different things are absolutely essential for One Health and allows us to ensure that we're saving both the animals and the humans together. Mm, fascinating. So... As you know, I've worked on various pandemics over the years, pretty much all of them. And, you know, Ebola and and SARS and just really all of them, because I've been doing this work for about 23 years. And it's all really, at the end of the day, about behavior change, behavior change in humans. And health as it stands is all about behavior change, right? Because prevention is a lot cheaper than treatment or death. Talk to us about that where One Health is concerned. We're now looking to prevent the next pandemic. What are some of the things, Lynn and Mark, that you are doing in the One Health initiative that will help people to change their behavior so we prevent the next pandemic? Yeah. So I'll start and then Mark Mark will make it way smarter. And so one way is through, as you said, cultural change. So respecting the culture, but providing the tools to the moms and the dads on ways that they can keep themselves and their families safe. So if they are farming guano in bat caves, how can they do that in a more safe way with their children? Another way is by reducing greed. So it's behavior change, Kate, and it's greed that is driving this. So it's greed for more land, bigger spaces, more cattle, burning of the Amazon. And as this happens, there are direct results for pandemics. So wildlife has decreased by about 60% in the last 50 years. And the pandemics, pandemics have quadrupled in that same time frame. There is a tie between this. As we humans are grabbing for more and more, we're encroaching on the space of these animals. They have nowhere to go. And we are getting pandemics in return, as are they. So I saw a photo of an antelope group of species, and 70% of them were killed in less than two weeks when a rancher introduced sheep onto his land and the antelopes were exposed to it. So this one health and zoonosis works both ways. Mm-hmm. And so the other way is making sure that the children's next generation, which is the vital group, mm-hmm. are aware, their eyes are open, that there are other ways to be doing things. And the sanctity of space and the animal's right to be there, and how we are safer when the animals are there and left alone. The best way to prevent the next pandemic is by saving wildlife and nature. There's absolutely no question, scientifically proven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Lynn really did a great job of um, summarizing all the things that are absolutely necessary for us to be able to move forward in prevention of pandemics. The work that we are doing actually touches upon every single thing that Lynn has said. So first, we are out there, scientists, my colleagues, are trying to prove where these pandemic viruses live, 
What are the species? What are the reasons that make a species carry or transmit viruses? Is it because of stress, biodiversity loss, climate change, development? All of these reasons we're out there trying to analyze. Where do they exist? Why do they exist? When do they come out? Secondly, we're working with the government of any one of all of these nations to determine when we have found any of these viruses and what are the reasons. We work with them to say, hey, this is what's happening. These are the areas that they exist. These are the reasons why they exist. And then the government, we work on a policy level to develop laws and methods of protection to be able to prevent the people from being exposed to these diseases, changes in um, farming methods, development areas, ecotourist sites, etc. Then on top of that, not only are we trying to prove that the animals might have certain diseases, we're also looking to determine if what level of transmission is already happening between the humans that live and work with these animals as well. Not only them, but also their own farm animals that are interacting with wildlife and trying to determine what are the levels between them. Finally, we are working at the community level for education. Just like Lynn said, that is probably the most critical. The science work is purely us proving that it exists, but the educational part is taking that, that proof and putting it into action and trying to educate all of the people at the community level, the college level, and in the world. And that's where the other aspects of One Health come in, like someone who is an influencer, who can then mm -hmm. really impact on a much larger level. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you really need systemic change here in, in every mm -hmm. regard, right? Mm -hmm. And it sounds enormous. Like when you talk about it, it sounds enormous. What is the role of technology in all of this? And and I ask that question because if we really look back at the last two and a half years, right, that we've had this pandemic, which is doesn't seem to be over. I just got it again uh, mm. for the second time, and it just seems to be reoccurring. And I, I actually don't believe that we know what really truly are the ramifications yet in, in our health. You know, that's good people like you, Mark, to come up and, and tell us what those are. But what's the role of, of technology? Because we, we saw mass global behavior change around this pandemic. People washing their hands, people staying at home, you know, some governments leaning in more than others. I mean, it was a bit of a shambles, let's be honest. But if you think about it, the entire world changed their behavior. So how is the media and how is technologies, how are you applying those two things to this, creating this systemic change? Yeah. Oh, Lynn. Yeah. I'll start first on Please. technology, yeah. Mark. Let's frickin' frack on this one. So on the technology side, Kate, two things come to mind and probably more for Mark. One is these sort of instantaneous kits that allow the scientists, the wildlife veterinarians, the biologists out in the field to be testing for the right viruses to understand if it's within that population. So by some estimates, there are 1.6 million viruses on Earth and only 0.01% of them have the potential of causing a pandemic. So you have to understand, not only does this animal have a virus, but what virus should I be testing for? And is this the important virus to be testing for? And that needs to be happening almost instantaneously. So that is critical. As are new technologies around spotting, that allow the wildlife veterinarians and biologists and conservationists to see when an animal looks like it's in trouble so they can race out there and do the testing. 
And then the second big piece of technology is data sharing, Kate. So it's really about creating Mm -hmm. these new systems of connection so that if a a bison at Yellowstone, a herd of them is going down with something that's not understood, that information is broadly shared. And there are implications for other ungulates in Uruguay and wherever they are. And that level of data sharing and information sharing real time is absolutely mission critical and surprisingly has not happened on a broad scale before. But fortunately, there are some real trailblazers that are making sure that happens. What what do you think, Mark? Yeah, I totally agree with you. The advancements that actually have been made are incredible. We are rapidly getting better and better at trying to implement field-based technology for analyzing whether or not animals have certain diseases immediately, but also pairing that with other technology that we already have and have been using to say, oh, what exactly would allow an animal to be carrying these viruses? Oh, look at their health. Mm-hmm. It t- turns out, you know, when they have this level of white blood cell, it is most likely going to be giving off a certain virus. But not only that, we are working on advancing all of the laboratories around the world and also taking in information that we've learned from various labs around the world. So developing nations, developed nations, we're sharing information and technology back and forth to determine what lab procedures and technology is critical for them to be able to test for these diseases on their own. Our hope is that each country and every lab can do all of this work by themselves without the need of a developed nation's money and finances. They all have the tools, they all have the knowledge, and they have the training, and they can advance pretty rapidly. The other piece to this is, like you said, the media. You know, we can all do really great and, uh, you know, get our information, but if we can't share this information and we can't, like, bring it to a level that everyone can understand, it sometimes it goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it just sits in a publication that's been created yeah. and nobody uses it. But the media has really rapidly brought all of us together in the globe to say we are one global community now. We are no longer siloed in various countries. Mm -hmm. Everyone has access to this information. And Mm -hmm. to me, I think that's the most amazing thing about it. Mm -hmm. You touch on finances and money, and you also touch on media and the importance of media and storytelling, right? You know, let's be honest, scientists and conservationists and, and uh, even CEOs of, of conservation companies, not you, Len, because you're a fabulous storyteller, but often they are so specialized, right, that we can't understand what you are talking about. Hence me doing this podcast and probably asking you very stupid questions because <laughs> I don't understand your scientific world, right? And I will also say what I've been thinking the whole time that you've been talking is I don't like bats and I don't like rats and I don't want to save them. But now I get it, right? In fact, I'm very, very scared of rats. Very, very scared. And I had them in my in my backyard, in my house in Washington, D.C. There's more rats than humans in D.C. So uh, <laughs> completely freaked me out. But yeah, no sympathy for the rats or the bats. And that's that's also behavior change, right? People... There is a massive long history of how rats have spread these pandemics. Black death, Spanish flu. Oh, I guess that came from birds, right? Spanish flu. Did that come from birds? Chickens? Bats, maybe. Uh, birds could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't remember, actually. <laughs> You'd, oh, okay. Well, the yeah. Spanish flu killed 
50 million people back then, right? In the right. early 1900s, is that is that when it happened? Yeah. But yeah, convincing people that we've got to save the bats and the rats, I think is is tough without this kind of dialogue. Now, with that in mind, let's talk about funding because, you know, this is, Len and I have this conversation all the time that there is, and I've worked in, you know, fundraising and global development for a very, very long time. And what I know of funders is they like to fund something they can clearly see, touch, feel, understand. And it, it's often hard to sort of create that picture, i.e., let's save the rats and the bats, right? No one's immediately going to run and go, oh, yeah, I want to save a rat. Yeah, sure. So let's talk about funding for a second. Where are the underserved funding areas? And how far does funding go? Now, I understand your model, Lynn, of you fund the conservationists like Mark to okay. do the work and come up with the data and then share that data and so on. But I'd like you both to comment on how valuable funding is and, and what does it do and where are the underserved areas where funding is needed? I'll start. Funding obviously is mission critical, so there are never enough funds, certainly to address this One Health initiative and the future pandemic challenge that we're facing. Fortunately, there are some folks who have come in, wonderful people who are funding this work, but we need significantly more funds. In terms of the underfunded areas, it is, as with almost all things, the underfunded areas are those within the indigenous communities that need the most support and get the least support. So these are the communities that are living on the fringes of this next pandemic. They are the ones who will be the first folks to get it, and then it will spread from there. And it's one thing when it hits, you know, your third grader in Michigan, and it begins to feel very personal. It's harder for get, to get people to understand, not only stay out of the way in bats and rats, but help this woman in this village that you have never been to and will probably never go to, keep herself and her family safe and protect those animals, because in so doing, it will affect your third grader at some point. But it's a, it's tough. It's not as straight a line as some other things. And to your point, Kate, there's nothing cute and charismatic and adorable about a bat and a rat. You could show, you know, elephants, people want to fund all of these Pandas. charismatic megafauna, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so it's more about the story, the personal story, the importance of it for the planet and understanding that we are all interconnected and that by mm -hmm. saving them, you're saving yourself. Mm-hmm. Mark, where would you spend a bunch of money? <laughs> <laughs> you know something, prior to the pandemic, the amount of funding that was focused on pandemic research was actually cutting back. There was some major cuts in the United States AID mm -hmm. funding, and uh, there wasn't really a big global initiative to push forward. There was a knowledge that a pandemic could hit at some point, but these are all insurance funds, you know, when or if a uh, you know, big pandemic might happen. Mm -hmm. But since the pandemic, you know, a lot more funding has been freed up and a lot more universities have focused or reprioritized around the world for this kind of work. However, ultimately, annually, maybe there's about several hundred million dollars being focused towards pandemic prevention. But in reality, what's needed, um, it's postulated that about 50 billion dollars worth of finances should be focused on pandemics and prevention, which includes conservation work because mm -hmm. it's a matter of maintaining biodiversity. So $50 billion a year should be focused towards pandemic prevention investigations. However, 
that seems like a lot of money. It's greater than GDPs of a lot of small nations. But the reality is the cost of COVID-19 yeah. is maybe about $16 yeah. trillion, dollars, yeah. Yeah. which would afford 300 plus years yeah. of pandemic prevention initiatives. Wow. So, you know, obviously we can't suddenly shake up and, and pay $16 trillion immediately. But, you know, this kind of investment on a global level from WHO, UN, US, all the wealthy nations pooling their finances together, that's, that's how it should be spent if mm-hmm. we're looking at trying to prevent another $16 trillion or more, you know, pandemic. Mm. I have a quick question. I want to get back to the money, but you made me think of something that I want your opinion on, Mark, as a scientist. Where are you based, by the way? Are you, are you local? Oh, you're in New York. All right. Yeah. Well, New York got walloped, right? You yeah. got walloped by the pandemic. Businesses mm-hmm. closed down. I mean, it's just so many deaths walloped. In your opinion, did we handle this pandemic in the right way by isolating people at home? You make such a great point. Trillions and trillions of dollars have been wasted. And our world now is in crisis and in economic trouble, right? Did we handle this in the right way? Sure. So obviously everything is hypothesis because we just don't know. If we had not, could we have lost so many more people to this pandemic? We have to remember what the actual goal of isolation was. Understanding people are like, well, I'm still getting COVID. I'm still getting sick. But that wasn't the goal. The goal was not to prevent or get rid of the virus altogether. The goal was actually to allow the virus to become less and less and less detrimental over time. So that way it would become this endemic virus that's no longer a threat to society. Mm. Already, we have four coronaviruses that are the part of the common cold. You know, the common cold that we get every year, twice a year. Yeah, remember that? <laughs> remember <laughs> that cold? <laughs> right. Four of them are actually coronaviruses. Really? Which it's, it's theorized that originally when they first jumped into the human population, they were also major pandemics that gradually reduced over time to become the common cold. Mm-hmm. amongst other viruses that are out there. And so this virus, we wanted people to isolate, to wait it out, wait out the virus as it would eventually reduce its power. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so here we are now, people are getting the virus and like, oh, it was nothing. Yeah, it's like you a know? cold. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. the goal. And so isolating it retrospectively was the right thing to do. Understanding mm-hmm. that, you know, still a lot of people died and it's absolutely tragic. But maybe, hopefully, we prevented several hundred million more people from dying by doing these isolations. Mm-hmm. And in your opinion, was the the blame on China fair? I don't know, because we still actually haven't pinpointed the exact source of the virus. The area in China that it actually spread from is a major node of transportation for the world, not just China. It is a huge hub, just like Atlanta, Georgia. So anyone could have come into that area already with the disease mm. and then it spread thereafter. It could have been someone who is not Chinese, someone who was coming from a different country and then mm-hmm. going through Wuhan. And Wuhan just so happens to be a major hub of travel destination mm-hmm. for people mm-hmm. to go to and from. I made the grave mistake of watching the film Contagious at the beginning of the pandemic. Completely freaked myself out. I was like, I'm going to die. That's it. My life is over. And then we all went into lockdown. But, you know, the the movie, I'm sure you've watched it, right? It's pretty accurate in a way. I mean, 
<laughs> if you think about mm-hmm. how we weathered the storm on the height of the pandemic, it's it's frightening. And thank mm-hmm. goodness there's people like like you two doing this work and and helping us to prevent the next one. Mark, last question: How feasible is it, and what's our timeline of two things? One. When do you think the next virus will hit? And would you have any idea of what that might be? And then the second question I have for you is, what other animals, we've talked about pangolins, bats, and rats, what other animals or mammals have been involved in spreading pandemics? Sure. So when the next pandemic comes out, I cannot predict. You haven't got inside information there in your lab? Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but what we can say, like Lynn mentioned earlier in the show, is that 75% of emerging infectious diseases come from wildlife. And the reason why is because of the things that she had mentioned about the development, the stressors that we're putting on wildlife. And this keeps on increasing with a change in human population, an advancement in technology, a desire to improve the business-like aspect of each country, and also to provide for their people. These things are continuing to grow. Biodiversity continues to go down. Climate change continues to make an impact on these populations and causing more stressors. And so it's only a matter of time that it's going to continue to happen. And these occurrences have been happening more frequently over the last 40 Mm. years because Mm. of our improvements in technology development, Mm -hmm. etc. And the monkey, the ape. Did they start HIV AIDS? Yes. Is that where it came from? Okay, that's yes. confirmed, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of the species... And look, like, still going 40 years right. later. I mean, mm-hmm. we've made incredible strides, but... You're right. I mean, mm-hmm. billions of dollars invested. Billions. Mm-hmm. I spent and a lot so of it myself. Died. And mm-hmm. so many people died. And, right. and one would think that we would learn our lesson, right? One would think that we would look at other pandemics like that and go well, let's just look at the root of the cause here and do something, which of course you're doing. But interesting. So 1000% confirmed that HIV started in a monkey, an ape. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the other species, so like you already mentioned, bats, rodents, and primates, these are our highest risk species, just based on their, their natural biodiversity within a taxonomic order of bats altogether, rodents. These are the two largest orders of mammals in the world where there are just so many so many different species that have evolved and have also evolved to harbor various diseases mm. but then of course primates primates mm. are the closest relative to humans because humans are naturally a primate and so they would also be carrying viruses that can be more easily shared between us and them then of course other species like waterfowl or poultry where we get avian influenza from, and then pigs, which tend to be a mixing vessel for a lot of other diseases that you can contract from bat, gets into a pig, then gets into a human. So there are species out there, and we're still learning every single day about the sources and what makes them more prone to be able to be shared with humans. Lynn, I happen to know that you have this fantastic collective called Conservation Nations Collective. And we're working together on this One Health project. Now, for everyone who's hugely inspired by this podcast and the incredible work that you are doing out there, and I know there are many conservationists that you're working in around the world, what could a philanthropist do to help us 
around this one health project and you know you and i believe in this in this theory that a philanthropist is is much more useful when they lean in they learn about the issue they become advocates themselves they inspire other people we want to get this project funded don't we <laughs> we, oh, do. we do it's we so do. critical <laughs> yes so what would a an advocate a philanthropist get to do as part of this collective it would be an amazing experience. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right, Kate, that we are looking, and thanks to the Body Agency, we're looking, and thanks to Conservation Nation, we are looking for the perfect person who is willing to bring, as you say, Kate, the time, talent, and treasure to help have a meaningful personal impact on this critical issue of One Health and preventing the next pandemic, a legacy that they and their families can leave mm -hmm. for generations to come for the world. So we're looking for the right person for this, and their experience would be phenomenal. So they would be mm -hmm. co-creating with us, with people mm -hmm. like Dr. Valatuto, mm -hmm. with me, with others, co-creating a program, a three-year program around their specific passionate interest of solving and preventing this next pandemic mm -hmm. and what impact they can make over the three years, working closely in the field, having conversations, ideation sessions with these incredible conservationists like Dr. Valatuto learning through the William & Mary Institute of Integrative Conservation, having salon dinners with global thought leaders on the topic, mm -hmm. bringing their family into this. It's yeah. an incredibly meaningful experience. It's just waiting for someone, the right person, just waiting. And, you know, I absolutely love that, obviously, especially with families working together and the transfer of both knowledge yeah. and wealth you know, into the next generation. So yeah. if you are a philanthropist and you have children or grandchildren that are interested in this, please do get in touch with us. You can get more information at thebodyagencycollective.org and you can also at Conservation Nation read up about the project. The world is lucky to have you too. Thank you so much. You have put a human and an animal face to this. And <laughs> yeah, let's get this project funded and let's leverage a lot of the work that you've already done on this. I know, Mark, that you work closely with USAID, which is the US government's sort of funding platform. But the role of a philanthropist is so important in this mm. because they can help us to innovate in ways that the US government can't. And the US government gives a pot of money. It's all assigned. They make the call on how you're going to spend that money. And, you know, to build off what Lynn just said, a philanthropist will work very closely with you to really fill those gaps that the government is not funding. So we'll leave it at that. We're out of time. Thank you again for being on the show. You are just amazing. So thank you for your good work. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code PODCAST10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.